Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Health Science Podcast. My name is Devin Box, and I'm your host. Music brought to you by the talented Chase Drew. Mm -hmm. Check out his music wherever you stream. And if you're into metal music, you're going to love his new band called Road to Elysium. Go yes, listen sir. now. My co-host is Zachary Hunter. And fun fact about Zach, um, he cannot read greens in golf. <laughs> That's so mean. But when he has me there... To read the greens, he is one damn good putter. And as a result, we actually beat Cobble Hills. Yes, we did. So we can say that. It took all summer, but we got it done. I love we how we both had intros for golf. I love that. <laughs> we did beat Cobble. Well, two under or three under? Two under. Two under. Yes. And Zach, yeah, Zach had the same thing to say on his podcast. So if you go over to the Fiscal Frisk, Ooh, you, can, fiscal frisk. you can listen to that. Yes, sir. Um, now, as of recording this, I officially have approval for my study. Woo! So it's a great day. Um, now today's episode is going to be rather short, but I wanted to cover the topic because of how pertinent it is. Now I'm sure you've heard of, you know, maybe on the news, uh, COVID-19 vaccine development, mm -hmm. and there's been a lot of buzz about people getting close or certain countries using things already. Yep. Um, and now we mentioned on a previous podcast, how many there actually were in development. Uh, but some news is broken that China and Russia have begun, uh, COVID-19 vaccinations outside of clinical trials. Which that's huge. And this decision's been met with, obviously, its share of criticism. However, I wanted to look at this through a little bit more of an optimistic lens um, because this isn't actually the first time that there's been an authorization of a vaccine prior to phase three clinical trials, which is kind of the end and then once they get through that, then they can be licensed. So we've done this before. Yeah. Um, so the paper today is not a research paper. Rather, it's a brief synopsis of, of how emergency authorizations have been implemented before. Right. And what we can learn to potentially do it again. Because just because China and Russia are doing something doesn't mean that it's necessarily the worst thing in the world. Um, so we want to actually kind of analyze this um, and what can we learn. So it actually is written by a researcher out of Western University. So go home team. Yeah, <laughs> hometown. We like We're it. on the board. Um, so the title of the paper today is, quote, Emergency Use Authorization for COVID-19 Vaccines, Lessons from Ebola. So because this is a summary, uh, we're going to read direct quotes in the paper and we'll kind of add information where we see fit and, and guide it a bit. Okay. So. The authors write at the beginning, so they say China and Russia have begun COVID-19 vaccinations outside of clinical trials. This move has been met with widespread criticism because the safety profiles of these candidate COVID-19 vaccines remain uncertain without data from phase three trials, um, which is what we said earlier. Um, and then they define an important term here. They say emergency, emergency use authorizations, which is a regulatory mechanism that enables the public to gain access to promising investigational uh, medical products when those products have not yet received regulatory approval or licensure. So, uh, and they, they've been used in the past, given that they say, quote, they can be met with ethically justified, uh, provided certain conditions are met. So we have a set of criteria that have to be met. And if they are, governments can proceed uh, with administering vaccines prior to them being fully licensed. And where can we learn about this? The authors say, quote, experience of emergency use authorizations for 
investigational Ebola virus vaccines in Guinea and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or the state DRC, um, can elucidate key lessons that can guide ethical emergency use authorizations for COVID-19 vaccines. So what was the actual story with the vaccine use uh, for Ebola? Quote, in 2016, uh, Guinean authorities made a request for expanded access to the then experimental, and it's called recombinant vesicular stomatitis virus, which is RVSV vaccine expressing the glycoprotein of Zaire Ebola virus. So basically just the Ebola's. Ebola vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just call it that. They did um, specify that there was another one. Um, so there was two vaccines that had actually been used um, for this initiative. Now, the specifics of the vaccine type don't matter here. We don't want to be too sciencey. Right. Uh, so, what is important here um, is the way that they delivered the vaccines. Now, they say expanded access was granted to provide, again, they use the technical version, we'll just say the vaccine. Um, to contacts of confirmed cases of Ebola virus disease as part of a ring vaccination strategy. Now, this this is a strategy that only vaccinates those that are most likely to get the virus. So again, like the ring of people around someone who actually has like a confirmed case of said virus or disease. Right. Um, so it's not just a sweeping virus if everybody's going to get it, um, which is important as you'll see soon. Because the process to get a vaccine through the emergency authorization route uh, must follow guidelines that the WHO, which is the World Health Organization, uh, that they put out. Mm -hmm. And these guidelines obviously follow a type of risk assessment. Uh, So the authors bridge this to their main point. They say, quote, two key differences exist between the emergency use authorization of Ebola virus vaccines and emergency use authorizations or conditional approvals of COVID-19 vaccines. So there's two key things that uh, could be concerning about the use of the COVID-19 virus, uh, sorry, a vaccine um, in comparison to what they did with Ebola, and they want to highlight those. So, quote, the first key difference concerns the coordinated and transparent way in which vaccines were authorized for use during the Ebola outbreaks in Guinea and the DRC. Uh, now, the Ebola vaccine was guided by the emergency assessment and listing procedure that was made by the World Health Organization. Okay. Um, and central to this was what they say, quote, the assessment of whether submitted data demonstrated reasonable likelihood that a vaccine's quality, safety, and performance data are acceptable and that the benefits outweigh the foreseeable risks and uncertainties in the context of a public health emergency of international concern. So there's a lot of stuff going on, but they basically, again, that's an assessment of like, do we actually need this yeah. um, for you know, X community? Uh, what evidence do we have based on the trials leading up to that point? And the main issue with the COVID-19 vaccines is that they haven't followed these procedures um, and have not actually been listed for emergency use. Yeah. So we have done this before, but the way that it's happening right now is is not in stride with that. So what they say is that it's unclear whether these vaccines will actually be able to meet the rigorous standards of the WHO procedures for testing, uh, manufacturing quality, and a risk analysis, uh, which is which is concerning. Yeah. Now the second difference is an interesting one to me, 
Now, the authors say, quote, a second difference concerns, or sorry, a second key difference concerns the perverse influence of geopolitics um, and vaccine nationalism that plagues the COVID-19 vaccine landscape, unlike that of Ebola virus vaccines in 2016. Um, now, the authors worry that some countries have actually put their national interests first um, and have essentially started this kind of COVID-19 vaccine race yeah, where they want to be the first ones to do that. So that they say, quote, the in incentive to develop a license, or sorry, to develop and license a COVID-19 vaccine first, or at least earlier than other countries, could compromise the integrity of an emergency use authorization risk assessment. Um, which is interesting because it's like, they have this path, and if you're doing a, a COVID-19 vaccine for other reasons, in this case for some sor sort of geopolitical gain, yep. um, it wouldn't be advantageous to go through this rigorous process that yeah. has kind of worked before. Well, and I'm thinking about just in general, uh, ever since like the pandemic started, people like Trump and other countries have actually spoken out against the WHO and like tried to like delegitimize it pretty much. And I think a lot of countries are taking that to like into consideration also because like you don't have to follow WHO rules anymore technically like what these countries are saying. So I think it really comes down to is because I don't even think they have the legitimate use of force, the WHO, they can do sanctions, but there's nothing really preventing countries from going around it and doing this. Yeah, like it, it's more of a, from my understanding, is more of a global oversight body that they don't have, you know, authority yeah. in a lot of cases too so they can you know say uh, that like this risk assessment and like that they should do this and like obviously they should but there's nothing preventing countries like russia like china people who suck like who've talked out against the who from being like well we don't have to do this we'll just do our own thing yeah exactly and and this kind of even that this is a problem is something i wanted to kind of comment on mm -hmm. um and again very short episode so this is kind of our last point but um because I think this is something that people might un not understand about science is, is that politics affects it too. Yeah. And we've talked about this on the podcast and that's a phrase that you'll hear us say a lot. And if you follow us, a lot of times I like to look at research and, and highlight some of the limitations. Um, and one thing I've also discussed is in that ethics process, when we were getting approval for a study, right? Like you, you have to declare what type of conflicts of interest there are. Right. right. And there's always ways around that. Right. Like mm -hmm. where you get your money oftentimes is very important. Right. And when you're doing um, a type of study called a meta-analysis where you take a, a conglomeration, a bunch of different papers and you want to bring them together and you want to analyze them as one group and see like, OK, like what does on average, what does all the research in this field say? Right. Well, it's a lot easier to find positive papers that say that there is an effect of, of you know, the certain thing you're studying, right? Because they're more likely to get published. And that's not even a bias that's, inf it's, that's caused by, by money. Yeah. Right. That's just because it's not as easy to get dud results published. Right. Cause they don't say anything. Yeah. And then on top of that, if there is money being involved, you know, that has a lot of influence and a lot are, of influence. And there are checks and balances that we go through to make sure that we're not being influenced by any type of outside influence um, and that there's nothing biasing the results and that what we're in getting. Theory. Yeah. And again, that's what we work toward in theory. Yeah. Right. So we have all these regulations in place, but that people just see science as this un 
this golden untouched relic, you know, that always provides perfect information. And that's just not true. Yeah. Right. Like there's, there's good and bad science. There's really stringent and really sloppy science. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that. And it's, it's almost impossible to, to go through all that yourself and know all that information. And that's why we do have to trust, you know, the integrity of these institutions a lot of times in, in the journals and what they do when they review, like what process they go through. And and there's a reason why, like, some of the top, you know, journals in the world. I think the the really influential one that I know is the New England Journal of Medicine, and you know, it'd be, you'd be hard pressed to get a paper in there. It's got to be a really good, right? Like you have to do some really good research to get right. published in that, and that's what people aim for, right? So at the end of the day, it's funny is that personal gain and your career gain is still what's trying to make you have those stringent standards, right? But if you have something go where you know, there's other influences and whether that be money or a position off, whatever it is, yeah, right, those can influence that too. So for sure. It's like the business, it's cooking the books. It's the science of cooking the books. <laughs> <laughs> but to stop this, you know, we've got, you know, very specific scientific methods, uh, statistical methods. Um, and again, we can understand where money comes from, all these different influences, and we can make our judgments. Um, and all of these things, you know, are, they're rigorously monitored. Um, and there can, sorry, there are appropriate checks and balances to ensure that there's this mutual accountability from, from, you know, scientists and the people that use that information. Um, and this is in every field. Um, and it's discouraging to see that COVID-19, like the crisis has almost been weaponized for political gain in some cases. Um, when in reality, it's like the vaccine that everyone's waiting for could potentially be affected by global politics too. Yeah. Right. Like you'd be like, oh, well, we got to spend a bunch of money on vaccines. And then people would be like, yes, that's the kind of leader or person we need or that's the direction we want to go. Yeah. Little do they know. Right. There could be influence on that level, too. So it's so hard to know where to get all this information and where you could be kind of blindsided from next. Of course, the most recent example is the U.S. election. And I know COVID must have played a huge role in the decision making for a lot of voters. I know yeah, it was over 50 percent like seeing uh, it lead up and, and from some of the statistics. It's uh, it was important to a lot of people, yeah. and you know this especially gets muddier when you consider that you know the advice that the authors uh, have for everyone moving forward, and they say that we should follow the the best known procedures, um, and that they should be made transparent to the public. They should require uh, you know a favorable risk to benefit ratio, um, which should be informed by engaging relevant communities using an accountable system of oversight and monitoring. And all of it sounds great, but it only works if we could agree on things, yeah. right? So this this weird interplay between science and politics is something that sometimes goes unnoticed. For sure. And pharmaceuticals in general, like pharmaceutical oh. con- like companies kind of like low, like low key, like the conspiracy world is like <laughs> they run the world because there's so much money and like so much political sway into it, right? So if yeah. you don't back them, lobby groups, you, stuff yeah, like exactly. That. Um, and again, I, I can't come onto the specific details of all that kind of stuff, but you know, you know what goes on. Yeah. Um, so for the consumers, you got to just make sure to do your homework, right? When learning educate, about educate, educate, like don't just read headlines. And you know, that's like a lot of issues in today. Like people just read and see like vaccine, but like no one goes in and actually sees what it entails or like what phase it's at. Like just educate yourselves to like, we have so much resources at the, at our fingertips. Just educate yourself. Yeah. No. And it's, you realize that science is not a perfect entity that's above all of this, 
right? It, it really is the same kind of thing. And the only reason it exists in, in the pretty form that it is is because of the you know, amazing work um, and integrity that a lot of people um, have put forward in the past and, and have continued to uphold to this point. So whether it's public health, vaccine production, or any large-scale operation, um, and if you're listening to this, like Zach said, you're probably fortunate enough to be able to access that kind of information, so mm-hmm. get at it. Um, now, you you know who uh, also has a lot of information? Who? Zach over at the Fiscal Frisk. Fiscal Frisk. Go see him Thursday mornings to get frisky with your finances. <laughs> Music by Chase Drew. References and contact in the description. We want to hear from you. Uh, come join the conversation. And for Zach and I, stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you next time on the Health Science Podcast.